0: If any time seems like you're being derailed by period pain, fatigue, anxiety, gut issues, especially more than one of these things, not just one, the birth control pill is usually the first recommendation. But the problem with that is that just masks the symptoms and that could potentially put someone at greater risk for struggling with infertility later because they never had the disease addressed appropriately from the beginning.
1: Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast, all about reinventing your health with safer, cheaper, more effective natural solutions and powerful lifestyle changes so that you become the CEO of your health. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder. Did you know that the very first treatment of endometriosis was pregnancy. Now I recognize how outrageous that may sound to you because goodness knows it sounded outrageous to me when I first heard it. But it was feared that endometriosis was on the rise due to the delayed and infrequent childbearing. But you and I know that this is so far from the truth. Doctors urge that women be taught how to become pregnant and not how to avoid pregnancy. By postponing pregnancy at an early age, women were defying nature's rules. In the 1960s, endometriosis was considered a career woman's disease because more and more women began to fragrantly break nature's rules and enter the workforce. The typical patient was said to be underweight, overanxious, intelligent, egocentric, and a perfectionist. And between the 1960s and early 2000s, the opinion around endometriosis in the medical community hadn't shifted much. It wasn't until 2006 that there was a medical conference on pelvic pain and endometriosis. The only thing doctors were really concerned with for several decades was the connection with endometriosis and infertility. Otherwise, they ignored the pain many of their patients presented with, suggesting that endometriosis patients were neurotic anxious and prone to overacting when it came to pain. Patients were listed with somatic delusions, basically told that it was all in their head. Despite its prevalence, a recent study of general practitioners found that nearly two thirds said that they were not comfortable diagnosing endometriosis. Now the fact that it is surgically diagnosed as a disease means that the average gynecologist or primary doctor doesn't get much training. And given that the onset for endometriosis actually happens when girls are teenagers and the symptoms typically are less obvious, symptoms like digestive issues, anxiousness, sleep issues, and pain, and that could happen anytime during their cycle, it's no wonder that endometriosis can be very easy to miss or missed entirely. One study found that two-thirds of teens reporting chronic pelvic pain were eventually eventually go on to be diagnosed with endometriosis six to 12 years later. Now, if you're wondering what is endometriosis, after me sharing all of that information with you, I want to quickly define it. Endometriosis is best defined as an inflammatory disease. It occurs when endometrial tissue comprised of similar tissue normally found within the uterus are present in other areas of the body, most often the abdominal cavity around the ovaries, fallopian tubes, bladder, diaphragm, and bowels. The disease symptoms include pain before and or during your menstrual cycle, fatigue, heavy bleeding, painful bowel movements, painful urination, and painful intercourse. Those are just the main symptoms. There's a lot of other complexities when it comes to endometriosis. And about a third of women with endometriosis are infertile and more than half experience pain during sex. When women with endometriosis have pain all of the time, The condition is said to contribute to over 80% of chronic pain in women. On the other hand, when some women don't exhibit any symptoms, they only discover the disease once they are trying to get pregnant. Given the complexity of endometriosis, I invited a dear friend and world-renowned expert on the topic of endometriosis, Dr. Jessica Drummond, to share the most up-to-date and cutting-edge functional treatment recommendations. Now, before I bring Dr. Drummond on, I want to take a moment and just celebrate you. Every day I hear from new listeners who are recommended by you. One such listener is Isabella, and she reached out to me on Instagram where I love to hang out last week. Here's what Isabella had to say. I have had the biggest takeaways from your podcast. Armed with the knowledge I've gained from you, I'm taking control of my health in a whole new way. I am 45 in perimenopause, and I've lost 22 pounds by doing your detox and listening to your advice on multiple episodes. I've even helped my friends with their questions based on the information that I've learned on your show. I can tell you that you put a lot of thought and effort into each episode, and I am really grateful for that. Well, thank you so much, Isabella. You are a woman after my own heart. Thank you for sharing your big win. And I love that you are supporting your friends too with the information that you are learning on these episodes. Now, if you are listening, Isabella, I would love to gift you a signed copy of my book, The Essential Oils Hormone Solution. Just reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram where you found me originally, at Dr. Marisa. Now, if you are listening, first, welcome to today's show. And if any episode or topic has helped you in any way, I would be honored to shout you out too. You can reach out to me via Instagram, Facebook, or you could review this podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you love to plug into. That way, together, we are changing the way women are thinking about their bodies and empowering them with the knowledge to become the CEO of their health. Now let's jump into this amazing conversation with Dr. Jessica Drummond. I know she's going to blow your mind. But before we bring her on, I want to quickly sing her praises. Dr. Jessica Drummond is the CEO of the Integrative Women's Health Institute and the author of Outsmart Endometriosis. She holds licenses in physical therapy and clinical nutrition and is a board-certified health coach. She has 20 years of experience working with women with chronic pelvic pain, and she facilitates educational programs for women's health professionals in more than 60 countries globally. And she leads virtual wellness programs for people with endometriosis. Well, let's welcome Dr. Drummond on. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast, Jessica Drummond. Honey, how are you
0: doing? I'm so good, thanks so much for having me. It's my honor to be here.
1: Oh my gosh, you are not only what I I consider to be a dear friend, but I am always so inspired by the work that you're doing in the world. We are talking about endometriosis, but most particularly how we can relieve some of the biggest symptoms around endometriosis, pain, digestive issues, anxiety, infertility. We'll probably go into even deeper topics. But what I wanted to do before we lay the groundwork for all of the good work that you are doing in the world Is I would love for our audience to hear a little bit about you and what led you on this journey to being clearly, to me, one of the biggest crusaders for helping women truly heal naturally from endometriosis.
0: I started off, actually, my career as an orthopedic sports medicine physical therapist. I was an athlete as a kid. And it was sort of a natural transition, but pretty quickly within about the first three years of my practice, I specialized in women's health, which women's health from a physical therapy standpoint and pelvic health is really, there's a new kind of catchphrase now, orthopedics in a cave. So like, you know, we're still looking, if you if I show you my little pelvis here, we're still looking at muscles and joints and nervous innervation and circulation and and even things like back pain in pregnancy or shoulder pain related to breast cancer surgery, which, you know, if we have an athlete who goes through a shoulder surgery or has a pelvic fracture, there are clear kind of pre and post-op plans. But when people have a C-section or an endometriosis surgery or any kind of pelvic or vulva vaginal surgery... There's not been a standard follow-up with rehab. You know, one of my old bosses used to say, a C-section is the only major abdominal surgery where you're sent home with an infant and no recovery or rehab.
1: Just to the testament of like the strength of women or maybe how we all perceive, I mean, women are very strong, but like, is it that we think women are just so strong that we just send them off into the world with a baby that, you know, with that level of surgery, you can't carry a lot of heavy objects. I mean, there's so much that one, but we expect you to get back out there, take care of potentially your kids that you already have, do the things that you're already doing, take care of this infant and somehow no strategy for how to heal a major surgery like that.
0: Yeah. And so my perspective really from my physical therapy career for more than 20 years now is that we needed to take the same approach to women's health kinds of surgeries as we did do for athletes. In fact, there was even a study done in one of the orthopedic journals that showed that childbirth was as physically challenging as, you know, serious sports injuries in many cases. So That was kind of the clinical background. Then I had my first baby in 2003. So gosh, she's driving now. It's a little scary. And um, after that, I had my own experience of a personal sort of hormonal crash. Which, knowing everything I know now, but didn't know it all then, it was probably a reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus. I had a lot of chronic fatigue. I had a lot of terrible anxiety. Plus, I had an infant that didn't sleep for. Six years or so, and so, um,
1: not six so, months, six years, <laughs> no,
0: like six years, yeah, you know, years of breastfeeding, trying to go back to work, all of that essentially had a you know, adrenal dysregulation, hormone imbalances, things related to that. So, that's what introduced me to the world of functional medicine, functional nutrition, because my colleagues in Western medicine didn't really have anything for me other than like, oh, take a nap, have a pack for your seventh sinus infection, you know, take some antidepressants. This is what we have.
1: So yeah. <laughs> and so We have a whole but, lot of nothing for you.
0: <laughs> right. And this is normal. You have a baby, get used to it, you know, but I got to the point where I just really couldn't function. I could barely drive. I had to quit my job. So I found functional medicine by Necessity. And that taught me that, you know, just using very simple tools of simple, but, you know, sort of complex in their application nutrition, lifestyle medicine, changing my priorities in relationship with sleep and work and, you know, type anus and all of that. And I got very, very healthy. So around, I don't know, 2008, 2009, I started using nutrition and health coaching and lifestyle medicine as a part of my physical therapy practice and then as its own practice in and of itself. And what I realized was everything I learned from my own health crash could be applied to my clients or my patients that had their most complex presentations of various pelvic pain conditions, which, you know, even the first several years of my practice, we would get people to a certain level with physical therapy and surgery and medications, but there was often patients who would plateau. So now I had kind of a new set of tools that I had the personal experience of. And then eventually I got a doctorate in clinical nutrition and did some research and was able to marry that kind of wide lens conservative approach of using pelvic floor rehab with functional nutrition, lifestyle medicine, and health coaching to really get root cause healing for women with endometriosis and other chronic pelvic pain
1: conditions. Mm, I love, I love your, your journey and all of the, the research, the work, the discovery that you have put into, you know, serving, not only educating people as a whole, like on this episode in this podcast today, but you now, you educate practitioners around the world on how to address endometriosis in a functional manner, getting to the root cause using nutrition. So I just want to say thank you so much for that because training our practitioners to know what to do. I mean, that's really where we make the transformation.
0: Yeah, yeah. And really, I started that way and I felt it was important because one in 10 people with uteruses, women or transgender men, have endometriosis. It's very common. It's 176 million, almost 200 million people globally. There's no possible way that I can treat those people. No. <laughs> so, from the beginning, really for 10 years or more, I've been training my colleagues with everything that I knew because, I, you know, it's just, we need, a, it's an army required to help make this transition.
1: Hmm. Well, let's dive into endometriosis. Now that we know how many people are dealing with it around the world globally, what are some of the most common symptoms? I know a lot of people hear about endometriosis. Maybe we have a friend or a family member with endo. Maybe we're even seeing symptoms We and we're being told to take birth control. We're being told to take a Xanax or we're just told to, to take a nap.
0: Yes. So... <laughs> The endometriosis can have a wide variety of presentations, and there's not a direct correlation with how severe the actual disease growth is versus the pain and symptoms. So let's back up for one second and just describe briefly what endometriosis is. So endometriosis is a benign, is a a disease that uh, results in benign growths outside of the uterus. So it was named endometriosis because the tissue that makes up these little lesions or large lesions is made up of tissue that's similar, but not exactly the same as the tissue that lines the inside of the uterus. So it's often thought of as like a, you know, uterus disease, just take, you know, have a hysterectomy and get rid of it. But the truth is that's, that's actually complete opposite of the definition. The definition is that you have these endometriosis growths outside of the uterus, outside of the ovaries, outside of the bowel, on the diaphragm, in the nose. It causes collapsed lung. In some cases, it can be found in the knee. So it's, to me, it's kind of like a non-cancerous cancer. It's similar though from a functional medicine and functional nutrition standpoint to how everybody kind of has cancer cells. And you see, you know, Alzheimer's or people in their 80s and 90s who have had autopsies and, and things done in their brain and they have tangles and plaques of Alzheimer's. So they have the physical manifestation, but they don't have inflammation. So they don't have dementia or people that have cancer cells that don't progress to cancer because on top of the lesions, you also have inflammation which probably makes these lesions worse, more adhesions, may proliferate the lesions, um, may spread it, have it return growth. and there is some sort of autoimmune component as well.
1: Yes And I was hoping we talk a little bit about that.
0: Yes, for sure, and you know at its foundation there it's uh, genetic because we find it does run in families, and the same percentage of sort of female fetuses have endometriosis lesions when they do autopsies on you know fetuses that were not actually born as people in the general public, just slightly less the thing about that is it's not really just like a uterus disease. It's these growths that are outside of the uterus. They are not cancerous, although there is a higher risk of having certain cancers like ovarian cancer if you have endometriosis, but it functions a lot like that and it's very quality of life altering. So the symptoms usually start just in sort of pre-puberty and they're not usually recognized as such. It takes even now an average of six to 12 years to diagnosis. Um, when I started doing this work, it was 15 years, so we're making a little progress. Um, a yeah. little bit, yeah. Like, I 20 read that. years later. Yeah, <laughs> 20 years
1: later, we've bumped up three years. <laughs> right,
0: right. Oh. But if you think about like the timeline of its presentation, it's a little hard to see because it can be, it generally begins to present in pre-puberty, which now is anywhere from about eight to 12 years old. As digestive symptoms. And, you know, that could be anything. That could be nervousness at school. That could be parents going through a divorce. That could be a, you know, a biochemical gut issue. It could be a exposure to something that changes the gut microbiome. Like, there's lots of reasons that kids at that age could have digestive issues. But if you look in, in reverse, usually digestive di- issues are first, then pelvic pain. But in teenagers, that pelvic pain is less cyclical. So again, it's a little hard to relate to anything because the periods aren't regular yet. And you can have pelvic pain in general, you can have pelvic pain at any point. Usually it becomes more cyclical in adulthood. So quote unquote, killer cramps, which again, think about the fact that this is a genetic disease. So all the women in our family have horrible cramps. So even within the family, it can be normalized, right? Oh, just like your aunt, she had terrible cramps and someone else. So pelvic pain, pain with bowel movements, pain with periods, pain with sex, fatigue and anxiety are two huge symptoms that I often see as well. Digestive issues for sure. And infertility, about 40% of women with endometriosis also struggle with infertility. So sometimes endometriosis is silent until someone, you know, they don't feel any symptoms until they're trying to get pregnant. Other times they have horrible periods from the beginning. They have digestive issues. They always have pain with, you know, even gynecologic exams or bladder issues, bowel issues so the picture can vary quite widely and it's during a time when who's taken the least seriously of anyone in medicine, but a teenage girl, right? Or a girl in tween.
1: Yeah. Or so, early twenties, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Early twenties. And 75% of women who have endometriosis report that the disease has derailed their career, which you can see because of the time frame that the symptoms are starting to show up. You can't show up for the SATs. It's hard to do well, you know, show up for law school and make the state field hockey team. And, you know, there's so much going on in, in life at that time. So if any time seems like you're being derailed by period pain, fatigue, anxiety, gut issues, especially more than one of these things, not just one, The birth control pill is usually the first recommendation, but the problem with that is that just masks the symptoms and that could potentially put someone at greater risk for struggling with infertility later because they never had the disease addressed appropriately from the beginning.
1: Jessica, real quick question on that. So, you know, we're talking about birth control kind of suppressing the amount of estrogen, really kind of shutting shutting the, the whole reproductive system down in a lot of ways. You know, we're talking about this the component of endometriosis having an autoimmune and an inflammatory component. If we were to put people on a birth control pill method, like a hormonal birth control, wouldn't we still possibly see digestive anxiousness? other symptoms, would those still continue to proliferate inside of the body? Do we still see those, those symptoms continuing to show up?
0: Well, yes and no with the bowel. Sometimes it depends on if it, the bowel issues or lesion are or related to the location of the lesion and how inflamed they are. Now, the other thing that adds a wrinkle to this is in 2018 in Belgium, they did some studies. We used to think that the lesions were pretty much driven by estrogen. Right, which is not true. They're right. not. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So some are driven by estrogen, some by estrogen and progesterone, some just progesterone, some neither. So that's why hormonal suppression doesn't always work to help. But hormonal birth control is inflammatory, as you know. The other thing I really worry about with just putting girls on hormonal birth control without a really good plan is the combination of two things really increases suicide risk in teenagers, hormonal birth control and lack of sleep. And again, who has less sleep than like, you know, a stressed out 16 year old. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah,
1: for a 16 year old. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and the other thing I think besides, you know, the hormonal birth control, we know it has such a profound impact on our neurological development. I think that's what you're getting to in terms of, of what's going on here, that we don't people don't realize how much birth, hormonal birth control is impacting our brain function and our mood.
0: Absolutely. So mood symptoms is a huge thing that I think is very underappreciated. To me, that's not a solution. It might be a temporary you know, temporary useful tool to minimize pain while someone is doing all the things in my book and they're finding a skilled excision surgeon to see if they can have, if it's appropriate to have the the appropriate surgery earlier rather than later. The surgical outcomes are better if the surgery is done later. Fertility is preserved. I mean, if it's done earlier, Earlier. the fertility is more likely to be preserved. So we want proper treatment. We don't want to just like quiet some of the symptoms and potentially increase other symptoms because, you know, some of the other medications that are used, opioids are less so because there's so much talk about that now, but, you know, hardcore pain medications, brain neuromodulators, Lyrica, you know, amitriptyline, like a lot of these drugs that, that are psychosocial and impacts brain, they have some, you know, risk of addiction physical addiction, they are, again, these are potentially useful tools sometimes, but I think they're used without really considering what else we could do from a lifestyle perspective with much less side effect risk first, and then think about, well, okay, if that's not enough or we need them temporarily, pre or post-op, that can be very appropriate, but I think they just need to be used much more mindfully, if at all. Because sometimes, you know, I have a lot of patients who do pretty well who don't use these medications. And so they respond better to the gentler tools such that we use or even more useful tools. Like I have a, a colleague who has a wonderful physical medicine and rehab practice in pelvic pain in New York, and they have some other locations where they're doing like injections that are very specific in the pelvis to relieve specific pain, again, really
1: mindfully rather than just sort of like, oh, S- let's try systemic. to quiet these, system, yeah. these symptoms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and it that's a very targeted approach versus just taking a pill that goes everywhere, you know, and has other seve- severe, potentially severe side effects.
0: And usually irritates the digestion even more, which You know, you have organ crosstalk there. So if you're like more constipated, more bloated, you know, that's going to make the the symptoms worse as well.
1: Mm, That's something else to consider. Yeah. I I don't know a a medication that doesn't have some impact on the digestive system to some degree that makes a really good point that most likely you're going to feel, you're going to feel the side effects, particularly in the digestive system. Now, you had mentioned that we've come a little bit of a way. It's still taking 9 to 12 years on average or 7 to 12 years on average to get a diagnosis. And given that endometriosis in terms of numbers around the world is common, talk to me about where the disconnect is in screening for it, in discovering it. Um, Do our gynecologists and pediatricians even prepared to figure out what's going on?
0: No, honestly, they're just really not well-trained. And in the literature, there's no one good screening tool. Like there isn't a good screening outcome measure that's been found to be effective. So a clinician really has to be high and alert on this kind of broad and system intersectional Digestive, mood, fatigue, pelvic pain, period issues. Like they have to be really looking with a wide end, a wide lens to listen for this in their patients' histories, which they just aren't being taught to do. Now, the good news is there is a nonprofit organization called Endo What, who created a documentary on endometriosis, and they have a school nurse training program to help screen for this that our company does support uh we give some financial support to that. So that I think is a great place to start cuz you know all these girls are in middle school and high school but absolutely like just a ton more education is needed.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I just want people to feel like there's that's why we're having this conversation today to not necessarily feel discouraged but just recognizing the elephant in the room where a lot of doctors are just not well trained on figuring out what's going on. Let's dive in. Now that we've got kind of the lay of the land of what endometriosis is and how it can impact the body, I know in an ideal world, you probably have what you consider to be ideal treatment plan for endometriosis. Could you share with me a little bit about the approach that you're educating on around the world? Again, if I had my druthers, I would would find... Teenagers, g-
0: women in their young twenties, maybe even some, you know, middle school girls, who are starting to to display these kinds of symptoms, and especially multiple of these symptoms, and then take a system by system approach. So, digestive system, where we optimize digestive function, everything from chewing to stomach acid to digestive enzymes, tailored personalized elimination diet, because. There isn't really an endo diet there, you know, obviously there's more anti-inflammatory factors, but different people have different food sensitivities, different people have issues with oxalates or histamines or have more of an autoimmune picture. They have like joint pain and family histories of rheumatoid arthritis. So the, the particular diet can vary some, and it's kind of in those little areas that we have to make some adjustments. Then, you know, make sure there's good gut motility. Sometimes they need visceral pelvic physical therapy, good regular bowel movements, any nutrient deficiencies. I see a lot of amino acid deficiencies or poor protein absorption. So again, that doing that really supports the mental health piece of this anxiety and sleep and even pain directly from a brain, uh, a neuroscience, pain neuroscience perspective. So start with digestion, do it collaboratively with pelvic floor physical therapy. So there's a lot of relaxation of the pelvic floor muscles, mindfulness strategies, cognitive behavioral therapy around pain management and living your life, immune system function. So we'll use things like antioxidant supplements, gut healing supplements, gut microbiome optimization which we can test for and then help with specific probiotics, brain health, you know, make sure blood sugar is balanced, good iron levels, low inflammation. So really looking at each physiologic system one at a time starting with digestion and moving through the others. And then at the same time, so endometriosis excision surgery is an important piece of this puzzle for many people. And what I think is challenging is that the average gynecologist is, you know, not focused, not seeing pelvic pain and endometriosis day in and day out. You know, they're delivering babies, they're doing different, they have kind of a different job. So this is such a complicated surgery that we want physicians who are focusing their practice on minimally invasive laparoscopic surgery that know to take into account things like the diaphragm and the bowel so finding a good surgeon can be a bit challenging you know it's not every gynecologist and so doing that legwork up front will help people make a decision because unfortunately this disease can only be diagnosed by laparoscopic surgery And ideally by a person who really knows what they're doing and that though, the sooner the better can be done to really preserve fertility. So fertility is an important goal. That's something I want someone, you know, they may not have surgery for a year or even two years, you know, it might, they might take some time before they actually have the surgery, but to to be educated about it, to be finding a surgeon they want to work with, to be figuring out the financial resources, it's something we want to start early and then everything we're doing through the process in the book prepares for a better surgical outcome and then we have a plan post op to better support a surgical outcome and also some people decide not to have surgery for any number of reasons and so everything we're doing still supports symptom relief improved fertility and i have a lot of patients who just don't want to go any medication or surgery route. That's just their personal preference. So we do everything else we can. And often we can really improve symptoms that way.
1: What I love so much about the multidisciplinary, multi looking at all the systems in the body approach is, you know, not only getting such great results that you're getting when it comes to reducing that inflammation and reducing those lesions, but you can imagine that a lot of side benefits come from that level of, of integrative care. Like if you've got something else going on in the body, whether it's inflammatory or not, like most of it is, you're going to have great results across the board inside of your body.
0: Yeah. So we see other, you know, comorbidities improve anxiety, fatigue, other autoimmune issues, pre diabetes, other chronic inflammatory issues, better bone health. Like all of that is sort of the the side effects, which is the good thing. Side benefits for sure. (laughs) Side benefits. Yeah.
1: And I love that we painted the picture for what an ideal world looks like when we are treating endometriosis, whether it's a surgical approach and an integrative approach, or it's it's only the integrative approach and what we can do here, becoming the CEOs of our health, what we can do to help really support our bodies nutritionally, supplementally, I mean, even down to essential amino acids, like all the things that we can be doing. Now, As you laid out the ideal approach, I can imagine there are people who are listening to this and they're thinking, oh my gosh, like, I don't what, I don't even know how to start. So let's take somebody right now. They are hearing this and they're realizing, oh my gosh, One, they know that they have endometriosis or maybe they're figuring out that maybe they've got endometriosis, what should they start with at home? I'm clearly finding a great healthcare team to work with to get to the root cause. But are there things that we can start doing right now at home to lessen some of these symptoms, particularly around the pain that we would be experiencing either throughout the month or cyclical during the month?
0: Well, there's two things. I mean, first of all, you know, getting a health coach who's really skilled, like the people we train at our Institute around being there to support you to build your team, because taking the ceo role of your health when you're not feeling well when you have a lot of pain when you're very fatigued can be can feel overwhelming so having a health coach on your team can really help you navigate that so i definitely encourage that and we've trained a lot of people in our organization but also around the world you can find them at endodirectory.com and then so i want to talk about pain science for just a second pain is not directly related to how much tissue damage there is peripherally.
1: Absolutely.
0: While that's a factor, for sure, I mean, it makes a difference if you've broken your leg or not, whether or not you have leg pain, right? And uh, it makes a difference if you have an inflammatory growth on your ovary, whether or not you have ovary pain, but it's not the only thing. So the decision whether or not to propagate a pain signal, is kind of like, the brain decides whether or not there's something dangerous going on. So there are all these factors, one of which is, okay, let's say you have an inflammatory lesion on the outside of your ovary related to endometriosis. The brain gets that message, okay? But it also gets any other kind of negative messages. Some are biochemical, like inflammation, like you're eating a lot of sugar or you're under a lot of stress or you're staying up too late or, you know, you don't get enough outside exposure or you're doing all four, all of that stuff. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you don't have a dog or you do have a dog and they're crazy, whatever it is. Right. Um, so what we call that, so the, the people who have really done a lot of great work educating on pain neuroscience call those, DIMS, danger in my system, signals of of danger and versus safety signals, SIMS. And so what I like to do individually as a person to start to take control of, of your symptoms is to think about how many SIMS, how many safety signals can I bathe my brain in? So from a nutrition standpoint, can I start drinking a lot more water, a lot less alcohol and caffeine? Can I start adding cooked vegetables? Because raw vegetables might be hard to digest right now, but can I start feeding myself vegetable and, and you know, grass-fed beef stews and salmon that's wild-caught and you know protein from organic poultry combined with up to eight to 10 servings of gently cooked vegetables each day, that starts to send signals of safety to your brain that there's plenty of nutrient dense food around. That's not inflammatory, healthy fats like avocado and olive oil and olives and Sometimes nuts and seeds, right? So we're sending messages of safety biochemically to the brain through food. Even, you know, essential oils is another opportunity for signals of safety. Lavender to help with sleep, for example. Weighted blanket, because it's interesting. We used to think that pain messed up sleep. You know, pain would keep people awake at night. But it's actually the opposite. Sleep has more of an influence on pain than pain does on sleep. So, you know, like a bedtime routine, lavender, being in less blue light after 8 or 9 p.m., less Wi-Fi exposure, more hugs, more nature walks, just being outside if you're in too much pain to walk. Start thinking about all the things. So in pain management, what I've found after doing this for 20-something years Is constantly when people struggle with chronic pain they're going to lots of doctors appointments and medical appointments and the the appointment you know the practitioner is always like how's your pain level what's causing your pain how bad is your pain we're focused constantly on the pain but I start my clients with a little journal and I say start writing down all the times you feel more well less pain who are you with what are you wearing what are you eating how did you sleep the night before You know, because we have to start bathing the brain and reminding the brain of all these safety signals that you already have and that you can amplify. But if you're always focused on the pain, you know, just yesterday I was in the clinic working with a woman who had uh, more like pelvic floor dysfunction, bladder pain. But, you know, when we did a little bit of the myofascial work, her pain would go down and then it would kind of come up. And I said, all right, notice it's not always up. Hmm. Interesting. What about if you shifted just a little, does the pain go down at all? Oh yeah. A little bit. Okay, good. You have more control over it than you think, because if you feel pain and you're afraid of pain, and you feel any pain, like let's say we do a lot of manual therapy and then you walk out of the PT clinic and all of a sudden you feel pain. You're like, oh no, it's back. It's back forever. You know, cause the brain is really trying to protect you. The brain's job is not to keep you comfortable. No, it's it to wants keep to you keep
1: you alive. Alive. Yes. yes.
0: <laughs> so it's like, oh my God, the pelvic pain is back. It's never going away. We're doomed. That physical therapy made it worse. Oh my gosh. Forget it. Stay in bed for the next three days. No, take a deep breath, maybe do some mindfulness Couple of meditation, you know, a couple of minutes of meditation, or just shift position, turn on some different music, smell an essential oil—anything that changes the neurotag going on in your brain will change
1: the pain at least. Mm, I love that because it's the more self-nourishing you are committed to, like loving yourself and doing all these little rituals that help to support you. Is literally sending the, the signals that everything's okay. Um, And decreases the amplification of those pain signals of those alert alert signals
0: Absolutely, and while it's not an immediate like forever pain relief Steadily you begin to gather control more of the pain and less fear around it So I think it's a really important You know just perspective shift that helps people manage those really challenging days and over time have fewer and fewer and fewer really intense really challenging days
1: hmm. I love that I think that it's such a such an insight for us to all walk away with is just keep allowing you know reminding our brain that we're that we're okay and I mean it's one of many ways in which we can really serve our bodies now all of this or at least a good chunk of this is in the new book. Can you tell me a little bit about Outsmart Endometriosis?
0: Yeah, so the new book is called Outsmart Endometriosis and it's designed to help you relieve your all of these symptoms, digestive pain, fatigue, anxiety, all of it so you can keep your career on track because I don't want any, you know, 75% of women being derailed to me is a huge loss. For them, for the world, for their families, for the brilliance they could bring. So that's why I wrote this book. And it does give all of these tools. And if you feel overwhelmed about implementing them yourself, that's why I'm training thousands of people around the world. Because it is hard to take ownership and make these shifts 100% by yourself, but being super educated helps you build a team that's ready to support you through your healing journey.
1: I'm, and I'm glad that you're taking a moment to just acknowledge that, you know. And you, I mean, you know, as you've been a part of so many teams for so many women on their journeys, and you've helped to train so many teams to be prepared to help women on their journeys. This is no easy feat. And anyone listening right now who has endometriosis, who, who is still struggling, you know, I, I think that this is a breath of fresh air for what's possible. I mean, that's what you do so well, Jessica, Dr. Jessica, is that you paint the picture for what is possible for us. And I'm so, so blessed to get to share this book with the world and thank you so much for writing it. Thank you so much. It's pretty clear that I am absolutely in love with Jessica's mission and message, and I am so grateful for the immense support she has provided me and other functional doctors to support women with chronic pelvic pain and endometriosis. Because between the combination of chronic pelvic pain and endo, we're talking about hundreds of millions of women around the world. Now pelvic pain has become such a big topic in my research and in the women that I've been working with, that it is an entire chapter in the manuscript of my new book that I'm currently writing. I am excited to dive into this topic even more on the show and within the book. If you want a full picture on how to support endometriosis with the current research and functional recommendations, I highly recommend that you go out right now and get Dr. Drummond's new book, Outsmart Endometriosis. It's available on Amazon, But I will also have the links in my show notes for episode 172 or on the website, drmarisa.com slash podcast. And I just want to say thank you so much for stopping by and listening in to the Essentially You podcast. On the next episode, I am coming back with a solo to address the big elephant in the room for hormonal imbalance, and that is nutrient deficiencies. When we are lacking critical nutrients, we are unable to actually convert, produce, and metabolize hormones. And let me tell you, that absolutely weighs heavy on our energy levels, our brain function, our ability to sleep, and just feel like ourselves again. Plus, I'm going to be sharing my favorite hormone-loving foods in this episode. I'm excited to bring you in to some of the biggest discoveries I've learned when it comes to nutrient deficiencies. Until then, have an amazing week, and I can't wait to see you on the next episode.